And one of the biggest things that I try to talk to athletes who are, you know, currently competing or on their way out is your sport is not your identity. Mm -hmm. Sport is a component of your life. It is not your identity. And for some athletes, they don't see that separation. Mm -hmm. And then when they leave sport, that's when it's like, okay, now what? They're the same person that they've always been. They are more than the weightlifter, the football player, the wrestler. They are a person. Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Today, Jim sits down with Carissa Gump, a 2008 U.S. Olympian in weightlifting. She is a multiple-time American record holder, a five-time consecutive American National Open champion, and is in the New England Weightlifting Hall of Fame. Carissa has spent her life in sport, whether it be as an athlete, advocate, or as an executive leader. She currently serves as the executive director for the National Strength and Conditioning Association, the NSCA, and is the founder of Lifting You Up LLC, which is focused on supporting nonprofits at the policy and process level to help advance their respective mission. Outside of her amazing career achievements, she's also a wonderful mother and role model for her two children. We're so excited to bring you this episode and make sure to share and subscribe to the Good Athlete Podcast. And now, Carissa Gump. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're incredible. I think you know that I think that of you. Uh, let's go all the way back to start this conversation to, I think you said it was the 12-year-old you who yeah, fell in love so with training. I initially got involved with this sport of Olympic-style weightlifting when I was uh, in sixth grade. My PE teacher was also the weightlifting coach at the middle school that I went to. And he pursued me and was like, hey, you're athletic, you're fast. I see you in PE. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, um, I'll go check this weightlifting thing out. Uh, I think I went into the weight room once and I was like, yeah, no, I don't want to do this. There was mm. just a bunch of boys and me. Sure. Um, so the next year, my mom started working at the school as the school nurse and the PE teacher started bugging her about getting me back into the weight room. Even after one day, he was training some other girls at that time, and they had gone to a national competition and done well. So wow. I had kind of seen and heard that there were other girls um, involved. And so I said, finally, okay, I'll go, I'll, I'll try it again. There's other girls in there. Um, I'll do it. So went in, trained for two months, qualified for my first junior nationals. Um, two months after that, went to junior nationals and I placed second at my first national meet. And then from there, um, I just, just kept training. So I had finished middle mm. school and I kept going back. So I'd go to high school and then I'd ride the bus to the middle school. And it was just part of, you know, my, my life and my routine. And what I loved about weightlifting was that, you know, you can always lift more weight. It can mm. always be better. You know, no one is ever too strong or too technically, you know, proficient. There's always a challenge um, with it. So those girls that I started lifting with in eighth grade, you know, they they tell me they're like, I cannot believe you went to the Olympics for it. Like this is just an after school program and you took right. it to the next level. Um so after high school, uh, actually before high school, I was uh, entering in my senior year and the national team coach in Colorado at the Olympic Training Center called me and said, hey, I can guarantee you a spot in January or February of this year, but I'm not sure if we're going to have the availability in June. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'll be there. And I remember I hung up the phone with him. I went out into the kitchen. My mom was doing dishes and I said, I'm moving to Colorado. <laughs> He's like, you're what? You haven't finished your senior year of high school. And so this was back in the day where you could do like mail-in correspondence courses. So I did several of those. I got the books in the mail. I filled out the scantrons and, um, you know, sent in my, my tests and everything. And uh, February of 2001, I moved out to the Olympic Training Center. 
and was a resident athlete there for almost 10 years. Um, and it was, you know, the best decision that I could have really ever have made. And it, it shaped my future more than just as an athlete, but as a person and as a professional, um, the sport, you know, it's, it made me who I am, but also we'll, we'll probably get to this later. It is not who I am, but it has made yeah. me who I am. Um, so yeah, from there, uh, started training, continued to do really well, uh, trained as a junior and senior level athlete. So I competed at a lot of events, um, over the course of a couple of years, um, was going to school a little bit, you know, a semester, I would take one class, like it took me forever to get through school, but I knew that sport wasn't going to be forever. Mm -hmm. And I was also not in a sport like, um, you know, I wasn't Michael Phelps, I'm not going to be able right. to, you know, I, I needed a real job, I needed a future. And so that was always also part of the plan of, mm. okay, this weightlifting thing, this is great, but it's not going to be your life, it's not going to carry you through life. So uh, who kept yeah. you so in tune with that? Or was that just something you were really my parents? Aware? Yeah, my parents did education was always really um, important uh, that, you know, that was part of of my plan. I wasn't just out in Colorado playing and lifting weights. Mm -hmm. uh, even if it was one class a semester, one was better than nothing. And it was, mm -hmm. you know, continuing to pursue that that path. And once I figured out like, hey, you can you can do sport and business like this thing called sport management. I was I was hooked. Like I knew that was going to be my path. Um, but I also had an appreciation for the environment that I was living in at the Olympic Training Center. They used to have this phrase, they call it the team behind the team. Hmm. And that's what I realized. I was like, that's what I want to do when I'm done sport. I still want to be part of sport, but in a different way. Hmm. And so that's why I pursued sport management and nonprofit management as, as part of my, um, my education. And that kind of, and just a pull that together and that is is that the title of the program you're in now um it's or a doctor like business that? administration mm -hmm. and then my emphasis is in nonprofit management and leadership so um mba like really beefed up i would say and a lot deeper um than an mba love that talk to me about the depth what are some of the people who are just on the mba level not getting is it oh psychology? my gosh. I don't, I don't yeah. know. I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's just, it's a lot and it, it is, yeah. it's just a, a deeper level. Um, and then incorporating, you know, the research aspects into it and having to write papers and really like understand and learn the industry. Like I took a, a supply chain management class a couple months ago so good. and I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And now I walk into like a grocery store and I have such an appreciation for, you know, that box of pasta on the shelf, right, like right. the process to, to get it there and on the shelf and everything. I'm like, you know, I never really thought about it. It was just kind of like, poof, it's there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, also taking classes that are a little bit outside of my comfort zone and areas that I am not familiar in. Uh, that's been really, really helpful, but also reading a ton of research. I feel like I read all the time, but it's in areas that I wouldn't normally um, be interested in. So it's really helping me uh, grow and expand my outlook on the, you know, on the world. Fantastic. I, I, I believe that. I think, um, First of all, supply chain management is so exciting. When you talk about process over product to have like an insight, I, I think there's an incredible metaphor there. Wouldn't you say like supply chain management, here's this box of pasta, here's the product, but all that goes into that, it's not, it's like, here's this, I don't know what your best lift of all time was. I'd like you to share it with us if you don't mind, but <laughs> that doesn't just appear on the shelf to continue the metaphor. There's this yeah, long yeah. involved process to get you there. And that's the thing that most people don't see or don't even investigate. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. That's uh, like watching the Olympics, you know, every four years and people think like, oh, well, they just show up. Nope, right. nope, there was a process to that. 
there's a there's a supply chain, you know, that that yeah. goes along with that. Um, yeah, that's one of the things I, I love. People ask me, you know, so like, did you just show up and you made the team? And I'm like, I've been trading this for this for a long time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, okay. So let me pick on that a little bit. You, you, the quote that you, that your eighth grade counterpart said was something to the extent of it. Uh, you, you're the one that took it to the next level. So yeah. other than talent and genetics, what were some of the things that separated you from the pack? Oh gosh. Um, I think that you know, athletes, we're kind of our own unique breed. Mm -hmm. We are incredibly stubborn, but we are incredibly <laughs> determined. It's this kind of like wavy line. Um, mm -hmm. But also, you know, being able to step back and say, okay, that's enough. You know, right. it's, um, yeah, I, I think we're wired differently. Um, we're incredibly motivated and driven individuals in anything you know, anything that we do and God forbid someone say, you know, you can't do that. We're like, oh yeah, guess what? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to do it. You know, I, I had somebody say to me when I was talking about my doctoral program, they said, well, you can't do that. You're a mom. And I'm like, what does that have to do with well, it? Like, yeah, yeah I, I am a mom. I do have a lot of stuff going on, but guess what? Just like when I was an athlete, I have an awesome support system. Mm -hmm. I have a plan. I have time management skills and abilities and me going back to school, it's not taking away from my time with my family. Mm -hmm. So I make sure of that because I don't want my kids to look back and say like, Oh, remember those three years where, you know, X, Y, Z, and you didn't come to this or that, like everything as a mom is still happening. Right. Um, but yeah, don't don't tell us we can't do something because we're gonna we're gonna prove you wrong. I love that, and you could be referring to athletes or moms with that sentence. Mm -hmm. Totally, I like, yeah, I like totally. That. The uh, the mom thing. That's funny that you brought that up. I was just yesterday sitting with a very successful guy in corporate real estate who said the best people on his team, especially in a certain age demographic just happened to be moms. And he was he was going back and forth. He was trying to analyze the post-COVID mindset, the post-COVID approach to work. He was looking through all these different things. And uh, for whatever reason, it occurred to him that the moms seem to get it. They have, they have their priorities in order. They have work ethic that is probably unique. They have great care for what they do and who they do it with. Do you think mom, being a mom has has helped you with all this stuff? Where some people would say, man, isn't that a holding you back, it sounds like that's created a superpower. No, it, it being a mom is like, it is like a superpower. Yeah. Um, I have those skills, you know, from being an athlete, but I feel like being a mom just kind of like amplified it. Yeah. Um, there was a, uh, there's a group on LinkedIn that I follow. It's called the female lead. And they had a post mm. just today and it said, the idea that there was a period of time in where women did not work is flawed. Women have always worked. Domestic labor is a labor that remains uncompensated. So, so um, I, I I love that because yes, whether you if you're a stay at home mom, that's fine. That's still that's still a job. Yeah. Um, you know, you're stay at home mom. You work part time, full time, whatever. There is a lot that, you know, you, you do, you juggle, um, but in the end, you always get stuff done. You yep. figure it out. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a superpower. I'm like even more supercharged now, I think, as a mom than I was as an athlete. That's incredible. That's inspiring <laughs> to hear too. I love that. The um, Okay. So for, when did you become a mom? Was this like... During your athletic career, just after? No, no. So I had my daughter in 2012, okay. uh, June of 2012, which was really cool because my maternity leave was just starting as the London games were starting. So mm. I got to spend my maternity leave watching the Olympics. Amazing. Um, so timing was perfect. Uh, and then my son was born in April of 2015. So I've got a eight-year-old and an 11-year-old right now, wow. which um, totally blows my mind. Uh, <laughs> they have the the girl-boy difference. They have the age difference. They are two different individuals, um, and they challenge me 
both every day mm -hmm. in their own ways. Um, but they're, they're awesome. Uh, and they understand a little bit about like, you know, mom's background and mom was an athlete. Um, you know, they grew up when we lived in Colorado, um, they grew up going to the Olympic training center and cool. it was just normal to them. But now I think that as they're getting older, they're recognizing that mom's a little different than other moms. Like yeah. her, her background's different and um, they've come home from school and they're like, mom, we Googled you today during, you know, <laughs> during computer class. Like, did you know you have a Wikipedia page? And I'm like, yeah. And then my, my son the other day was like, you have YouTube videos. I'm like, yeah, those are really, really old. So I think they're recognizing like mom, mom had a past life. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and neither of my kids lift, they're involved in, you know, athletics, but, um, they're again, they're individuals, they're not me, so they don't have to lift. Uh, I'd like right. them to lift for sport, but they don't have to compete or go to the Olympics. They're, they are their own person. Of course. So you had your family, and if I got the timeline right, you from 2001 to 2011, you're at the training center. Yeah, about, yeah, 2000, so 2000, I did a training special, and then I moved out there officially in 2001, uh, and then I retired, I believe it was like early 2009, uh, okay. I retired, um, I actually competed at the Olympics, and came back early. So even before uh, closing ceremonies, so closing ceremonies were actually on my birthday, but I came back early because I had started uh, college full-time for the first time in my life. And Amazing. the uh, professor in one of my classes said, you know, tell us something fun you did this summer. <sighs> and I said, I went to the Olympics and he goes, cool. What'd you watch? And I said, well, I went and competed He's like, well, why are you here? And I said, well, this school has a policy. If you miss the first week of class, you get dropped from the program. And I didn't really think that was a good way to start, you know, like the next chapter of, of my life. Sure. So I yeah, jumped right back into it. Um, I had like a year and a half of school. I did 15, 18 credits. I just cranked it out. I did these crazy interim classes where it'd be like five days of intense work. And mm -hmm. I just knew like I had to get moving. I had to to go on. I was uh, 24, 25 at the time and uh, you know, life really needed to, to start. And so I was going to school. I was uh, working part-time at a CrossFit box. Uh, one of my uh, former uh well, he lived, he lived across the hall from me, a pentathlete. He owned it. And he said, Hey, you want to come work for me and be a trainer? And so I, I worked for him for a couple of years as a coach and, uh, also had to do some internships and I had a, a temporary position at the USOPC and someone hmm. said, Hey, we've got a job that's opening. Um, you should apply for it. So I applied for it. I think I graduated on like Friday and I started in my new role, like on Monday um, with USOPC uh, in a position actually called the Athlete Career Program. Oh, and cool. I was helping athletes uh, weirdly transition out of sport or get prepared yeah. to transition out of sport. And so we had a partner that we worked with and we helped them uh, get set up with career coaches for um, to learn how to write a resume, interviewing skills, mm. uh, anything that we could we could really help them with during that transition period. Um, and during that time, uh, I was there for about a year, and I met with all the other sport governing bodies and the executive director of USA Weightlifting. Mm. He said, "Gee, I'd love to have you come work for us." Uh, he he knew business, I knew weightlifting, and we could really. Uh, help each other out. And I said, you know what, this is, this is the leap I have to take uh, in order to, you know, gain that experience that I needed. And so I did that. And it was one of the best decisions I could have ever made for my career. So working for a small, uh, small nonprofit, hmm. I was exposed to, you know, a lot of different areas. So I was able to grow my skill set. Um, and so I was there for six years. And uh, then I found this amazing position with the National Strength and Conditioning Association uh, with their foundation. 
Um, there is a lot of uh, similarities. You know, it's a it's a strength based, strength focused uh, organization. So there was some membership crossover from USA Weightlifting to the NSCA. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, this is this is a great opportunity to really roll up all my skills that I've learned over the last six years and, you know, put them put them to work, um, you know, helping run this foundation. And so I've been with the foundation now for for seven years and it's just a awesome place to work. It's it's incredible. And bef- and I want to hear more about the NSCA foundation and the work you do, but we just pretty quickly glossed over your Olympic experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could we dig into that just a little more? Yeah. Um, How was so it? See. Um, so my Olympic experience was, you know, it was, it was really great. It was very surreal. And I still look back at it and I'm like, did that happen? Was that, was that real? Right. Um, it's almost like, you know, I was watching a movie or something, um, to train for something for so long and then finally have it happen is mm-hmm. like just this emotional roller coaster. I believe it. Um, I, I cried a lot out of, you know, happiness, but also sure. like sadness of like, okay, I know this chapter is coming to an end. And, um, but yeah, it was fantastic. China was just gorgeous. Everything was done so well. No, you know, all the little details were thought of. Um, so we were in China for, I think about two weeks. Uh, we mm. got there early to acclimate and, um, every country has its own like building or dormitory assigned. And so it was really neat uh, to, you know, to go to the Olympic village, see all these other athletes, but it didn't matter like what sport or what country, everybody just was so happy to be there. There was just like this buzz in the air and, you know, people would walk up to you and say, no, well, who are you? What sport do you do? Where do you live? What's this? What's that? And um, just this, uh, the spirit, this camaraderie was, mm. was just unlike anything. It's, it was just so incredibly special. Um, that, that reminds me. So we do a lot of like culture development work. And eventually one of the things that we try to do is dig into what could be a shared mindset. And to hear you describe that for some reason reminds me of it. It's like, here's this whole village of people from a, all these distant and dif- disparate walks of life but something about their mindset is already linked when they step into the Olympic village. So this buzz, I feel that there's so many pieces of of culture and human experience that are intangible and and hard to name, but it sounds like you felt it right away. Oh, totally. And and one of the, the crazy things is with that buzz is like, I, this past week, I was out in Colorado Springs uh, doing an event with the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, Mm -hmm. and they had a group of us, they brought together athlete presenters and athlete ambassadors. These were individuals I had never met before. We had, you know, one who was 19 years old and another, he might've been like late Mm forties. And the six of us went out to dinner one night and it was like, a college reunion. You would mm-hmm. think that we had known each other for years. There was just something that we all like, we just clicked. We yeah. just clicked. We had Olympians, we had Paralympians, we had hopefuls. Um, and there, I, I don't know what it is. And I had commented um, to the person who organized the event. I said, you know, it just always blows my mind how you can get Olympians, Paralympians, and hopefuls together. And all of a sudden, there's it's just this uh, everybody's comfortable together. We get each other. We're like on the same wavelength with things. Mm. Um, I, I often joke and say, you know, in the weightlifting world, it's like, hey, you lift weights, I lift weights. We're going to be best friends. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's like the same thing, you know, it's, um, it's this community, this Olympic family that you have, I could meet someone who's like a Canadian Olympian and it's like, cool, you're, you're part of my, you're part of my people. And yeah, it it is. It's this culture, this community, but there's this, this weird, this weird connection there. Something underneath the surface is already aligned when you step into each other's presence. I I get that fully. 
Yeah. Um, okay. So you're in the Olympic Village. There's a buzz around. Mm-hmm. Take us to the moment of competition. Yeah. Um, so the moment of competition. So competition starts. They have all the athletes line up on the platform and they do the introductions. And I remember that moment that I pretty much like almost lost it. Um, Mm. They say your name and they say your country. Mm. And let me tell you, that feeling is unlike anything. You know, they, they say my name and they say, you know, Team USA. And I just envision millions of people back in the United States. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I am representing Mm. an entire country. Um, I had competed at world championships before I had competed at Pan Am games, but to be on that Olympic platform and hear that it was like just this rush. Um, But then also to look up and see, you know, my family in the stands, but then also think about those people that were not there in the stands that have, you know, my sister had passed away and Mm -hmm. my coach wasn't able to make it there. So Mm -hmm that emotion as well. Um, it was just, it, I've, in a previous conversation we've had, I've used the word emotional ambush yep. and that's what it was. And in that moment, it was like, whew. Oh yeah. By the way, you need to now come out and, uh, you know, lift some heavy weights. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, so that was the first, you know, real memory that I have of that, um, that experience was the, the introductions um, going out and lifting, uh, it's, it's really hard to say, like I've done, you know, probably millions of snatches, millions of clean and jerks, but when you get on that competition platform, it always seems to feel a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, the weights feel heavier, uh, the bar feels kind of off. Um, but I, I did, you know, what I could do for that day to the best of my ability. Um, you know, no athlete is ever satisfied with, with how they did. Um, but I was there, it was an experience. I, you know, was representing, um, my country, but it was also, you know, the last 12 years or whatever coming, coming Mm -hmm. together for that, that goal that, that I was working for. So, um, incredible experience. Uh, I don't know if I'd be able to do it again. I would probably be again, an emotional wreck, but, um, just an amazing, you know, way to end my, end my career at the Olympics. Well, what did you end with? What were your top lifts? How did it feel? Yeah. So I ended up, I had to actually look this up before <laughs> the call. Cause I couldn't remember. Really? Um, I ended with an 88 kilo snatch and a 114 kilo clean and jerk. Um, so I didn't make all of my lifts. The last lift that I attempted was a uh, 121 kilo clean and jerk for a new American record. Whoa. And most people will be like, wow, that kind of stinks. Like your last lift of your career on the platform and you missed it. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, it does stink. But you know what? I had the opportunity to attempt it on the Olympic stage, on the Olympic yeah. platform. Um, so it wasn't the best meet of my life. Uh, but it certainly was the biggest, but, it was the, but it, in some ways it was the best meteor life. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was not the performance that I had hoped for. Sure. Um, but it was, you know, I was there. It's incredible. It is just, and I hope people realize how unique this is and I'm, I'm sure you do, but this is a tiny percentage of a tiny percentage of people who are even willing to train and try. Yeah, even, could yeah. even could even say the word Olympics uh, and actually were you mean the one, it. Were you the one that was talking to me about like, um, you know, more people can say that they've climbed Mount Everest than can say that they're an Olympian? I I was not the one that said that, but um, that might have been somebody at the lunch table, and that makes total sense. Yes, I know exactly who I know exactly who it, it it was. It was a professor at DU. He said that to me last week because okay. I am very humble about yeah. my, you know, accomplishment as an athlete. I've worked with people that weren't aware of it and then they'd come to me and say, "Well, why didn't you tell me?" Right. And my response <laughs> yeah. always is, "Well, it doesn't really impact the way that I do my job, so I didn't That's think right. it was necessary, but it's also not my identity." Oh, um and this amazing. professor 
this professor, you know, kind of said to me, like, you need to tell people, like, you have to realize what an accomplishment this is that more people have climbed Mount Everest than have made the Olympic Games. And I said, yeah, I, I get it, but it's still, you know, I'm, I'm humble about it. Yeah. And where did you finish? Where did that total get you? So I finished in 14th place. However, I think now I have to look back. I know at least two, possibly three individuals ahead of me uh, had anti-doping violations. Oh. So I'm either now in 11th or 12th position. Um, wow. Which That's... I'll, you know, I'll take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. In the world. 11th in the world. In the world. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny, and, and uh, I'd be interesting another time to hear more about your USADA work because I've heard that story more regularly than I think people would be aware of. Like some folks will, it, it doesn't always. Just give it a little bit of time. The standings don't always stay. Is something that I've learned. In fact, I, I was, uh, I just heard not long ago about a, a, a gold medal Olympian who did not leave the Olympics with gold, but the person above him you know, obviously. Yeah. Yep. And, and it to, does, it does happen, you uh, know, not uh, all the time, no. but it is a, you know, it is a possibility um, because of, you know, anti-doping violations, um, you know, and I'm really, you know, I'm really proud that, you know, we live in a country where anti-doping is, you know, it's, it's not tolerated. And it really, I think, sends a message to the rest of the world where we stand um, you know, competing clean and our, our integrity as, as a country. Well, that might align with this next piece that we want to talk about the, just the athlete identity. I, I can, I won't speak for you. I can only imagine as a much lower caliber athlete that when you dive so fully into something and when your identity is so directly wrapped into the outcomes of this thing that you've jumped into, why that would be appealing, right? You're, you're like any, any edge possible by any means necessary. I totally get that. I, I would imagine, did you feel it? Did you feel the pressure? Um, you know, I always, I always put more pressure on myself than anybody put on me. I, yeah. I really was, was my own worst enemy. Um, my, my coach joked and said, you know, if, if we could just get your head out of the way, you know, mm. you'd be a great athlete. <laughs> I think that's probably been said to countless athletes over the time, over times. You're not alone there, but I believe it. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So before we fully go down this athlete identity road, I do want to, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned that what an incredible picture that you just painted of standing on the podium, hearing your name and then your country being simultaneously grateful. And it sounds like a little bit, sad that some of the people you care about weren't able to be there in it with you what an emotional ambush your term which yeah. i will use so yeah. so we talk uh one of the things that we navigate all the time is like there's a big difference between emotional denial and emotional regulation one of them will never serve you and one of them is a skill to be built over time so in, in terms of emotional regulation how did you go from emotional ambush to regulation to performance and the other, the other thing I think you left out too, which I probably didn't say was the imposter syndrome component of it, of me no going, what the heck am what I am doing, doing <laughs> standing up here? Like, oh my gosh. And then I'd have to back up and be like, okay, I lifted the weight. Yeah. I did what needed to be done. Um, I, I worked closely with uh, sports psychology over the years just for, you know, performance anxiety and um, just really learning how to stay calm and present in the moment and, you know, focus on three snatches, three clean and jerks. Mm. Uh, and that, that really took a long time sure. to, to do. And I mean, I still been perfected. I, I still, you know, got the, um, you know, I'd say butterflies and people say, well, those butterflies aren't butterflies. That's the anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it, it just, it took a long time to be able to try to regulate that and, and go from that freak out mode to imposter mode to, okay, let's, let's focus, let's do this. Let's do this. Um, but that, you know, that's still, you know, I still use that when I, right. you know, when I have to present, you know, I, I presented yesterday um, for USADA and I was standing in front of the room in front of like 45 people. And I'm like, huh, I feel that in my gut, you know, I know mm. what that is. 
Right. I need to take some deep breaths. I'm the subject matter expert here. You know, I, they're here to learn from me mm -hmm. and, um, you know, to, to hear what I have to say, or, you know, I'm the one that's here lifting and they're here to watch whatever. Right. Um, but really using those same tools that I had, you know, as an athlete competing, like I, I still use those as, you know, as a, as a normal person, you yeah. know, when I, when I get those, those butterflies or that, that anxiety. So, well, you have um, great self-awareness. It sounds like, so you've been, you've been able to translate some of them. What are some of the tools I heard? I think I heard deep breaths and, and self-talk are those two. Yeah, ones? that's, that's, that's really big. Um, two of the other things that I did a lot of was just really surrounding myself and, and having constant reminders. I had sticky notes all over. I had, you know, uh, things written on my mirror in my bathroom, um, you know, uh, just inspirational things reminding me why I was doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, self-talk is, is really a big thing. And especially you know, in a sport like weightlifting, if you walk up to a bar and you're like, wow, this looks heavy. Well, guess what? You're probably not going to make that weight. Right. Um, so you need to walk up and, you know, be confident in your ability that all the preparation has been done. And, you know, you're, you're capable of that. And also having trust in your coach that your coach wouldn't put a weight on the bar that they didn't think you weren't capable of making. Mm. So yeah, just, just a combination of things, but sports psychology is a huge, huge component of, um, you know, I think being a successful athlete, you could have it all together physically, but if, if you don't have your, um, you know, your, your head on, then, you know, it's not going to happen or, or, or vice versa. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, you've got to have that balance and, um, you know, those two together, you, you could be unstoppable. That's incredible. Okay. So, and, and let's take the word athlete out of it. Cause after you talk about athlete identity, we've discussed this before. So many people get so tied into that idea. I'm a football player. I'm a weightlifter. I'm an Olympian until you're not. Mm -hmm. So now, now what would you say yeah. that those, would you say that those same things, obviously, but uh, if you take athlete out of it, would you agree that sports psychology, performance psychology, mental health, these are all part of the same discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and one of the biggest things that I try to talk to athletes who are, you know, currently competing or on their way out is your sport is not your identity. Mm -hmm. Sport is a component of your life. It is not your identity. And for some athletes, they don't see that separation. Mm -hmm. And then when they leave sport, that's when it's like, okay, now what, who am I? And, you know, they, they're the same person that they've always been, but they yeah. need to change how they view themselves. They are more than the weightlifter, the football player, the wrestler. They are a person. Mm. All right. I'm going to throw a big one out there. Yeah. Here's where I see that gap happening for people potentially. And I, and this is only my observation. You're the subject uh, here. And I want to hear your thoughts. One of the reasons I think that is so challenging for people, and I'll speak to my own experience, is because before the athletic career, they didn't know. And in a lot of ways, sports may have saved them or given them a community, given them a direction, given them healthy habits, goal direction, given, provided mentorship in many cases when it wasn't there pre-career and then all of a sudden, boom, career. Now I get it. Now I know. Now I've got my people. I've got my purpose. I've got all these things. I think that's part of where the now what comes in because if you don't have any something to like, well, who was I before this? Or if you don't have thoughtful people and thoughtful coaches guiding you through all the components of the process, the, uh, what did you, what did you say? The supply chain management, like what can we learn from this from getting from getting from A to B required capacity X. Maybe you are a resilient person. Maybe you are a driven. If, if you don't take the time to name those things, I think it becomes very difficult to transfer in part because you can't just go back to who you were pre-career. 
because of that need. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that, especially if you specialize in sport at a young age, yeah. um, you're not, you're not going to know, you know, well, I, you know, I went to college and I picked up the sport and I was a really good athlete. And now who am I? Like you have a little bit more uh, life experience if that were the scenario, but starting, right. you know, at, at 12 years old, for sure. Um, you know, for me, I think one of the other really big things that helped me was, yes, I was intensely focused. I was very, very selfish um, with my training, but I was also involved and I think integrated into other things outside of sport. And that Amazing. helped me a little bit along the way, um, in recognizing, um, you know, the world does not revolve around me right now. The world does not revolve around weightlifting. There's, there's a lot of other things going on. Um, but developing as, as a person, not as, you know, my, my sport or my identity in my sport, if that, right. if that makes sense. So yeah, it makes really sense. being mindful of, you know, again, yes, to, to have success, you do have to be very focused, um, but not go to the, not go to the extreme. And I, I think of, um, I sat through a presentation recently at a conference and it was on uh, collegiate female athletes and suicide. Mm. And the common theme with these individuals was, um, you know, they were injured, they weren't able to compete or, um, you know, their, their time as a collegiate athlete was coming to an end and they didn't have the, knowledge or ability or skill set to like be able to transition out of sport. They didn't know how to eat, mm. you know, by themselves. They were so used to eating with a team. They didn't know how to call and make a doctor's appointment because they always had sports medicine around them. Um, everything was really always taken care of for them and catered um, to them. And then when something in sport went wrong, mm. they didn't, have the um, ability or, you know, regulation to understand how to deal with those problems. So I, I think one of the things would be, you know, focus is great, but the level of intensity and, and not being able to recognize, like, there's other things going on outside, and, you know, you have other skills and things you need to, to develop. Um, but on the on the flip side, you know, sport, teaches you a lot of awesome things it teaches you discipline and teamwork and you know goal setting which is still something i'm super strong with um right. you know, time management that's that's why i feel like i'm a rock star mom because mm. i learned how to do time management mm -hmm. um you know uh, sportsmanship perseverance um focus you know being able to adapt you know so it, it does it teaches you all sorts of great stuff but then it's right. like you're kind of teeter tottering on, on things like how much is too much where, you know, you lose yourself and you lose your identity. Um, Hard to know, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it really, really is. But again, I think having other people around you to kind of keep you in check um, is, is helpful. Yeah. Um, and I, I look back now and, you know, my family was really supportive and understanding, especially being in a, in a weight class sport, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't always so happy. I had to cut weight. I was, sure. I was cranky. I was hangry. <laughs> um, and I look back and I feel bad, you know, for, I'm like, gosh, why did you guys let me get away with that kind of behavior? And, you know, my, my mom has said, well, you know, we knew you were cutting weight and you were, you know, yep. you going to nationals. And I'm like, you know, I don't think I would have condoned that kind of behavior, <laughs> Right. you know, right. if it was my kid, but, um, well, yeah, that's... so it, it is, it's, it's great, but it also has its downfall. So that I am, I want to pick on that a little bit. That is, you've seen some of my stuff or our stuff before with that, with the pyramid, we call it the higher to performance framework. And, um, it's one of our frameworks, but that bedrock level of eat, move, sleep, what you just explained, I can't tell you how often we hear things like that, like good people being rude to some of the people they care most about in their life, because not because they don't know better, not because they don't care anymore, but because one of those bedrock level components. So hanger is a real and documented phenomenon. That's a real thing. So uh, I identify with that immediately. Um, <laughs> go ahead. 
Oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm laughing at that, but it, it, the, the way that I explain it to people is, you know, I really feel like for 10 years I had blinders on. Yeah. I was not aware other than what was going on in my little bubble. Mm -hmm. I was not aware of what was happening in the world around me, yet alone sometimes even my own family. Right. But they were doing that to protect me and to allow me to maintain this level of focus and not be distracted by outside uh you know factors that's so incredible so support external support like none of us can do without that so we can work on all these internal skills but that external support was huge for you totally it's incredible uh okay so give me this too because it sounds so important to what you were saying you were talking about deliberately moving outside of your sport while playing the sport what were some of the uh, the other things that you were interested in during that time yeah So I, you know, I worked a little bit part-time granted Mm -hmm. it wasn't a gym, but it was, (laughs) um, you know, with, with people who had no idea, you know, I was an athlete at the Olympic training center. I was just a colleague, you know, just someone that worked at the front desk or someone who was a coach or a trainer. Um, the same thing when I, when I went to school, I was just another student, nobody knew my identity. And so I made, you know, some friends outside of my sport, which I think was, was really healthy. Um, it was challenging, you know, as, as a, you know, a young, uh, you know, teenager, early twenties, you know, trying to like navigate dating because they right. were, you know, we called normal people, right. um, <laughs> understanding the, the lifestyle of, of an athlete. It was just, you know, really hard. Um, so that's why, you know, athletes end up dating other athletes because we get each other. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, going outside of that bubble of of where I was, that was, you know, really helpful um, you know, for me to grow, but to to break away a little bit from my sport and have these other identities as a student and as a colleague. Mm, amazing. So this brings me to this to this moment right now. An athlete who's approaching perhaps the end of their career. Um, or, or, or recently has had to confront the idea that this thing that I was all in on is no longer present. This is now what moment, what advice would you give to those people making the transition? So the advice I would give them is, you know, as I said before, you are more than your sport. Your sport is not your identity. However, your sport has provided you with a great, you know, uh, skill set. You have a lot of really great tools that you've learned as an athlete that you can use as you transition into your next phase um, of life, whether it's as you know a, a college student or a full time employee. Um, so deep inside, you know those those athletic skills they're they're in there, um, and they you know they will make you a great student and a great employee. Um, But also one of the things that I suggest, you know, is as an athlete, we think about, you know, okay, I I thought in 16 week training cycles, Mm. um, I can't think that way now, but I break things down into, you know, goals. So if you know, like, okay, I want to go back to school. Well, what's the first step you need to apply? Mm. Second step, you know, what's your major going to be? Break things down into, you know, smaller chunks to get to that end goal. Uh, You know, for me, the end goal was the Olympics. Mm -hmm. My steps to getting there were, you know, utilizing the resources I had around me, sports psychology, you know, sports science, the dietitian, those resources helped me get there. And you have those, you know, resources in other manners, uh, you know, to help you, you know, get that job or get that college degree. Um, but yeah, sit down, think about what that next goal is going to be and what are the tools and resources and who are the people that are going to help you get to that, you know, that next training goal. Love that. Exactly. Right. And to really make an imprint, uh, punctuation mark, emphasize why that's so darn important. Have you seen this go awry for the now what folks? Yeah. Um, that same session I was talking to you about um, with those uh, female student athletes, I, I actually sat in the front row and 
uh, I just started thinking about, you know, not just my teammates, but athletes in other sports that I, you know, had the opportunity to live with at the Olympic Training Center. And um, I thought of several of them that, you know, really struggled and even, you know, committed suicide or attempted suicide. Yeah. And, um, you know, everybody's journey and story is a little bit uh, different. Um, but I, you know, would hope that, you know, they would have the resources and tools around them that, you know, could have, could have helped them, you know, navigate that, you know, now what, um, but mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, unfortunately, um, it doesn't always end up, you know, a, a success story. Um, and that I think is also part of my motivation of, you know, wanting to help athletes understand that, um, you're more than, you know, just your sport because, uh, you know, when you look at things like that's just a really small portion of my life. Um, you know, if I'm going to live to be 80, 90 years old, yeah, that was, that was only 12 years. That's not that right. much. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I did, uh, I did think about those, you know, those athletes and stuff and think, you know, well, what can I do? How can I, how can I help, you know, change this? And it's, it's really, you know, continuing to share my story, um, to be encouraging, you know, to those who I hear about these uh, stories of transition and, you know, some of these other athletes that I did get the opportunity to work with in my first job, um, I'm still in touch with them, you know, and I'm still kind yeah. of a, a a silent cheerleader in the background for them and, and checking in on them. And, um, but I, I realize, you know, yeah, it, it can go wrong. Um, but having a support system is is really important as well. Couldn't agree more. People need people. Mm -hmm. And uh... yeah, for sure. My hope to any athlete who might hear this and be struggling, um, my hope would, that, would be that any of those athletes know that there are folks like you out there. I, I One of the things that we've been working on is, is trying to, during an athletic career, really outline a template for how one would stay in touch. As simple as it sounds, isolation can feel like the right thing sometimes, especially when one is hurting. But it's uh, and it might be appropriate in bursts, but it's never the solve. It's never the solution. So staying in touch with your people um, sounds super important. That's making. Yeah. And also, you know, being being brave, but also recognizing asking for help is it's not a weakness. It's actually you are incredibly strong. Yeah. Um you know, by saying, Hey, look, I, I need help. That is one of the strongest and bravest things that anyone can do. And I feel like, especially mm. in the, um, the sport world, mental wellness and mental health now are okay to talk about, yeah. you know, we have people like Simone Biles and Michael Phelps saying, Hey, I struggled. And, you know, I, I struggle, you know, right. I can, I, I'm, I'm not going to to stay quiet about that and say, yeah, I had performance anxiety. I generalized anxiety. Um, I've, I've been there. I've felt it. I still mm. feel it. Um, sure. but it's nothing to be ashamed of. No. Um, I look at it as a way of, uh, you know, saying like diabetic, you know, they, they produce, you know, too much or too little insulin. Well, guess, guess what? You know, my brain produces too much or too little of serotonin. Right, it's, right. it's an imbalance. It's okay. That stigma, totally. um, I feel like it is changing, which I'm, I'm really happy to see so many organizations putting an emphasis and focus on, you know, mental health and mental wellness, um, not just for the athletes, but also for the coaches, because the mm -hmm. coaches have a really big responsibility, yeah. you know, working with, you know, whether it's five or 50 athletes, I mean, that's, that's like having 50 kids. Like mm. I, I have two, I don't know how coaches are amazing. <laughs> they're, they're amazing. You know, you're writing programs, you're, you know, helping, you know, helping them with technique or whatever, but then also on top of it, you've got these check-ins, you know, how's school going? How's your family? How's all this? Like, and some people, you know, I'm I'm one where, you know, I absorb what other people say and what they're going through. I'm I'm mm. deeply empathetic. So yep. um if somebody else is hurting and they share it with me, like I feel that I carry that heaviness. So um again, not just for athletes, but for coaches as well. Like reach out, ask for help. There are resources and there's nothing to be ashamed of. You are you are not built and meant to carry 
you know, this heaviness. And that's why we have these resources out there for you. There's so Mm. many opportunities uh, for help. So good. I'm going to challenge anyone who, um, it is brave to be vulnerable. Like you say, it is hard to ask for help and admit one's challenges. And so I hope people like you continue to help just change the whole narrative. Like even like sports psychology, talking about this recently, like you cannot have a conversation in performance psychology, sports psychology, and not also be talking about mental health. So to say that, like, we just need to reframe this whole freaking thing, because like I said, it is not soft to recognize challenge. It's hard to step up and name it. It's hard to deal with it and navigate. Like we've, we've just framed these things in a totally inappropriate way. And I think my fear yeah. and, and we're aligned on this is like that softness, that perceived softness, which is a just the, like I said, the wrong word because it's freaking hard is, is unfortunately the barrier for far too many. I do think that why can't a football linebacker reach out for support? Well, because the person's whole identity for years has been built on perhaps his or his toughness. Um, it is tough to do this next thing. It's hard. Yeah. Walk that line. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't shy away from a barbell. If it looked heavy, you would, you shouldn't shy away from a conversation that seems challenging, especially when you know that there's something important on the other side of it. So, yeah. I, and I, I, appreciate I also doing that. think that, you know, with, with coaches, you know, if they have an athlete where, you know, they see that they're struggling, yeah. you know, you've really got to put the, the person before the athlete, you know, you can't totally. just say, oh, you know, well, Jim's playing really well, but Jim's falling apart inside. Yeah. You know, football's not going to be forever for Jim. Like, let's talk about Jim as a person right. outside of football. You right. know, the best thing is to pull you from playing and help you, you know, figure out what's, what's going on. That is a good coach to recognize you as an individual and not as an athlete. That's, that's a really, really, um, you know, important thing. We, we talk about, you know, the W's, the wins all the time. And it's like, you know what, if if you do that and you keep him playing, you're really doing a disservice to him and yourself. And, Totally. And regardless of where one sits on the ethical spectrum of should I do this or not, it's the right thing to do, period. And anyone who could confront that and say it out loud, it's the right thing to do. I hope we would sit there. But even for those who are still confused and only driven by the the wins and the performance, taking a human first approach enhances performance. So you may not have your your star quarterback for this week or this month or whatever, but your, your team will be better. You've done the ethically correct thing. Th- these are not separate ideas. And there, there again is sort of that confusion uh, to be, to do good by the athlete, to do good by the person is good for all, no matter how you measure it. Yeah. So, yeah. well, you're amazing. Thanks for talking to me. For so long. <laughs> Thanks. This is a great conversation. We're, we're all over the place, but it's, there's so many, you know, really important aspects of sport that I feel are you know, like the, the mental wellness stuff, it's, it's really overlooked and it's, it's very real. It's It's very, very real. And I would say we are, we're moving a lot, but we are centered on something super important. And that's like, that's the value of the human, not the athlete. You know, that's what's down deep at the core of this entire deal. That should be obvious. We all recognize it. And I'm glad there are people like you out there breaking this conversation open further and sharing it far and wide and yeah i'm grateful for you well thank you all i'm, I'm grateful you wanted to to chat and, and put this out there so um you know the more people that hear this the better and the you know bigger impact that we can have for for all athletes couldn't agree more all right. and coaches and coaches yeah anyone around sport yeah all people so if if someone wants to follow up on this conversation wants to learn more about you where should they go where would you recommend oh uh, well um i am on instagram but i i do have i think just a lot of pictures probably of my my kids and my dog um so i'm on instagram uh my handle is carissa underscore only underscore 2008 um and then professionally i am on linkedin as well um, so those are, you know, two ways to get in touch with me. Love it. And you do consulting among other things. So 
Yep, I, I do nonprofit consulting, um, primarily with sport nonprofits and, you know, really helping them kind of uh, get their stuff together and help build them from the ground up so they can be, uh, you know, as successful as they can be. So if there's an organization who's looking for exactly that, Instagram or LinkedIn would be the way to find you. Perfect. Yep. Amazing. Do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them's up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project, and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Group. They do holiday cards. They do wedding cards. They help you. They help you not only celebrate special occasions, but make them that much more special. And like I said, if you are a small business owner or a large business owner, they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods. You just can't find that combo, honestly, anywhere else. Find them online at mightyprint.com. That's M-I-T-E print, P-R-I-N-T dot com. And on Instagram, same thing, at mightyprint, M-I-T-E print. And tell them the Good Athlete Project sent you.